0: We try to fill the Insight Myanmar podcast feed with loads of thought-provoking and informative content. But before we get into all that on the episode that follows, we just want to take a moment to express our heartfelt good wishes to all of you listening at the moment, wherever that happens to be, knowing how challenging it is in these strange times during the coronavirus pandemic. In trying times like these, we can all use a bit more goodwill in our lives. So on behalf of the team here at Insight Myanmar, I would like to say, in the traditional way that Beta has offered may you be free from physical discomfort. May you be free from mental discomfort. May you not meet dangers or enemies. May you live a peaceful and happy life. And may all beings be free and come out of suffering. And with that, let's move to the show. Welcome to the seventh episode in our coronavirus series. In past episodes, we have explored how the pandemic has affected monastics and meditators around the world. In today's show, we shift our focus to examine sites instead of people. We check in with three American based monasteries and meditation centers with some connection to Burmese traditions to see how they have responded in these unprecedented times. This show is also a bit different from our previous episodes in the series that we don't look at single snapshots in time, but rather pan out for a wider perspective and look at how these places have adopted policies and protocols in response to the ongoing reality of the pandemic. Looking back over this special COVID series, it occurs to me that our episodes have developed in a similar way to what we've seen worldwide in response to the virus. For example, when the pandemic first hit, it sent shockwaves around the world, forcing everyone to make major life changes in the midst of enormous uncertainty and confusion. Our first episodes reflected that as we spoke to individual monastics and others in Burma about the impact of the virus's initial onslaught. Over time, societies and individuals passed through various stages of lockdown, political disarray, waiting for successful vaccine trials, and COVID second and even third waves. Our series mirrored that shift as we spoke to meditators around the world regarding how they were adapting to life during the long haul of the pandemic. Another level still in the world's adaptation to the pandemic has been the upheaval that so many businesses and institutions have had to navigate. Many businesses initially shut down entirely either from their own assessment or because of government mandates. Over time, they evolved new and proactive ways to live within government guidelines be responsive to a concerned public. This is now where our own focus moves. So in this episode, we explore the evolution of Meditation Center's responses to the ongoing pandemic. At first, many simply shut down entirely, and monasteries engaged in strict lockdowns, often the result of governmental restrictions against indoor gatherings. Then, over time, these restrictions lifted, either sooner or later, under some new guideline or another. At the same time, many people remain skittish about attending large indoor gatherings, including meditators, especially without mask requirements. Regardless of a center's individual circumstances or the current local regulations, teachers, trustees, and administrators realized that this pandemic wasn't going away anytime soon, and that they needed to chart a new way forward in these very uncertain times. At that point, monasteries and meditation centers began to think hard about options for the dissemination of dhamma, outside a typical course or class format. Teachers also began looking for ways to ensure that the Buddha's timeless teachings of liberation remain practical and relevant for these challenging times. Each center found its own unique way to adapt and serve its meditator community. And those are the stories we tell today. The following conversations examine the internal process that these centers went through during the better part of the year, leaving off with their plans going forward for this winter and beyond. We hear from three different places today. We first check in with Sean Fite Oaks, the editor at Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Center in California. Next up is Aya Soma, an Italian monastic and co-founder of Empty Cloud Monastery in West Orange, New Jersey. Finally, we speak to Dick Delanois an assistant teacher at Dhamma Patapa, of a passionate center in Jessup, Georgia in the tradition of SN Goenka. We hope you will also be inspired to hear how these different centers are working so earnestly to keep the Buddhist teachings accessible and timely, especially in such difficult times, as we here at Insight Myanmar certainly were while conducting these interviews. All right, I'm here with Sean fight Oaks, and he is an editor at Spirit Rock. He's in California now, and thanks so much for joining us. Of course, happy to be here. Yeah. So before we get into some of the shifts that's come and changed with the pandemic, can you give us an idea uh, for those that don't know about Spirit Rock, what you offered and what the purpose and the mission of your center was in pre-pandemic more normal times? Sure. Spirit
1: Rock has been around since the mid-80s or so. And It grew out of what we now think of as our sister center, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. So it was founded by Jack Kornfield and uh, some of his senior students out here in California. And so it grew out of the same vision as Insight Meditation Society and generally the vision of the Western Insight Meditation Centers, which is that it's primarily a retreat center or we have up until pandemic times certainly primarily been a residential retreat center offering retreats of uh, from one day up to two months in the insight meditation style. And so that style for folks who may not be familiar with it is a form of uh, vipassana or our westernized or globalized Theravada Buddhism that grew out of two main lineages one being the Mahasi lineage of Burmese Vipassana, and the other being uh, Jack Cornfield's primary lineage through the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. So we've always been a multiple lineage center, and the teachers. Here at Spirit Rock. uh, There's a teacher's council of uh, a couple dozen teachers now and and growing. Uh, Many teachers have studied in multiple lineages, not just within the Theravada, but broadly within uh, Buddhism of different streams. So there are folks there with strong training in Zen, strong training in Vajrayana of various lineages, particularly Dzogchen, but also folks with training in, in other uh, related streams like like the Advaita stream of Sri Punja um, and uh, certainly Jack's uh, time with Sri Nisargadatta as well. So we have an eclectic stream of practice coming together into really quite a lovely uh, retreat environment uh, for uh, folks, about a hundred folks at a time, uh, almost year-round uh, coming to do retreat. And that has changed, of course, with the pandemic. Uh, since March, we have been offering all of our programs exclusively online, uh, including developing uh, and, and, and really working on how to offer uh, retreats online uh, with people practicing at home, but with as much rigor and, and clarity as we can you know, to, give, to give a sense of the retreat experience, even though we can't gather in person at the moment.
0: Right, right. And if you could take me back to that time around March when the reality of the pandemic really started to hit people everywhere with the severity of it and the disruption of life, and you could take me back to what was happening at Spirit Rock in the discussions with some of the senior teachers, the trustees, the center managers in at that moment of trying to figure out exactly what was happening in the world and how you were starting to calculate and figure out your response to it,
1: well, I think like everybody, it was kind of just a mad scramble. You know, uh, we we made the decision to um, to close the physical retreat center actually during the the March month long retreat. Our our long retreat um, has always been February and March, uh, and so we had a hundred people sitting the entire month of March, and some that had been sitting since the beginning of February, um, as we have had you know every year for for twenty some years, and the retreat managers and teachers had to make the very difficult decision to cut the retreat short with people that were you know deep in. The field of their practice, and mm-hmm. and you know, and kick them out into a world that was you know kind of convulsing with this 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 new, still mostly unknown threat, and it was really dramatic. It was it was so it was harsh. Uh, I was on the long retreat twenty years ago when we uh, when the United States invaded Iraq, and uh, I remember the moment when the retreat managers interrupted the retreat to tell us what had happened. You know that that the country was now at war. In this in this very serious way that that many of us had protested, you know, just weeks before to try to stop, um, and it was really dramatic. So I I really felt in my heart. I wasn't there on the retreat this year, but I really felt the the force of you know interrupting a long retreat like that. Um, so that was the kind of immediate you know drama. But then behind the scenes, there was really this this process of saying, okay, you know, it's at the heart of our practice. To know that everything changes, that everything is changing mm-hmm. constantly, that the future is unreliable, that you know th- the best laid plans, as they say, um, and so I think, in a way, you know, our practice supported us as well as uh, as as we could be to to roll with it and to you know shift and. And you know the biggest, the heaviest lifting was on the side of, of our IT team, uh, the the tech folks, who really very quickly geared up to to transfer retreats that were already on the calendar into an online format, um, to to really upscale and and solidify the streaming that we were doing, and you know getting everything onto Zoom the way everybody did. I think in in those those first months and so it was a little chaotic but relative to just shutting down uh, i think i think it went it went all right
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You mentioned the this intersection between the worldly and the spiritual, and reference back when you were taking a course during the Iraq War. And we often think of like a spiritual practice as being a retreat. We even use that word from the worldly, and yet, of course, there's always this intersection interaction. Um, I had friends as you were talking. I was reflecting that I had friends who were in serious courses. During three events of of worldwide consequence, nine uh, eleven was one. Another mm-hmm. was uh, a friend in Japan who was there when the tsunami hit, and uh, they had to figure out how severe the consequences were and how to inform students and 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 whatnot. And then the the final was a friend who was sitting in Yangon during Cyclone Nargis, mm. and same kind of thing. Actually, that was probably the one of all these events where the center was actually directly affected by the the impact of the. The world, because trees were literally falling, you know, at the center ground. So, it's uh, it's interesting this experience of going to deal with the world better, to take a retreat out of the world, to slow things down, and then in the middle of that retreat, the world creeping back in and trying to find that dynamic balance between them.
1: Absolutely. Generally, in my own teaching, I you know I try to resist making a dichotomy between the world and not the world. Mm-hmm. It's all the world, you know. When I was on my retreat um, in Yangon at Chemya Yekta in 2002 so I, I was I did a temporary ordination there I was there for a rains retreat and and you know when I was going there uh, it was still in this there was this kind of it was in this phase of like this tenuous opening from Burma being really closed mm-hmm. And and one of my teachers, I was getting ready to go, and I, I was talking with uh, with one of the Spirit Rock teachers about being there, who had who had recently just been there, and he said he said, "Oh, it's you know it's going to be great. Just do this, do this, do this, do this. Oh, and and you know bring a whole bunch of five dollar bills, um, just to give to people." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "To give to people," and then I realized that what he meant was, um, "You're going to need to bribe people to get through customs and and ah, right." You know. And and I was like. I was like, oh, this is like this is my Buddhist teacher, you know, ethics, like precept keeping teacher, being like, take a bunch of five dollar bills, it's gonna make your life easier. <laughs> and, and it was really like, oh, the world is just right there. Uh-huh. And, you know, there's there's no separation, you know. I I often tell a story of, of sitting in meditation in the the hall there at Chemya Yekta. Uh, I was I was there with Sayadaw Ujjanaka on retreat, and, and and one day I hear this this kind of these sounds coming over the wall. You know, it was in a it's in a kind of suburban neighborhood. Uh, you may know it. So I hear these sounds, and and after a while, my mind. You know, I've been doing I've been doing vipassana, so I'm just like hearing, hearing, and at some point it coheres in my mind, and I realize that somebody's practicing the clarinet, and then it coheres a little bit more, and I realize that they're playing um, like a virgin. By Madonna. Oh. And I'm like, <laughs> I I came all the way to Yangon, you know, to the outskirts of Yangon, to this monastery to do, you know, like rigorous vipassana. Like, like it's it's the it's as much away from the world, my world of California, you know, as I could possibly mm-hmm. get, practically, you know. And and here's somebody like practicing Madonna on the clarinet. And and so it's all here, you know? And and in that sense with Spear this year. Um, It very much feels like that, you know, not just with the pandemic, but through the course of the year, it's really been part of our practice to, you know, to respond to the, the crisis in race relations in the United States, to respond to the killing of George Floyd, to speak to, you know, the chaos of the election and really the Western insight meditation centers, uh, they're not monasteries right we're not they're not certainly not hermitages. Mm-hmm. In a way, it is our mission to be a bridge between you know the inner and the outer life, you know mindfulness of the internal, mindfulness of the external and and we really are community centers in a certain way for folks who have a kind of value. That is strongly informed by early Buddhism, strongly informed by the precepts, by refuge, by uh, but also by concepts like interconnection and and interdependence, and and so it's it's at the heart of what we do to to offer uh, retreat practice, but also to to know that we are embedded in, in the world, really in, in the complexity of people's lives, in the, the political uh, situation. So it's all right here. And so what we try to do is, is offer people you know, resources and support for their inner life uh, and, and really to be on a path of liberation in, in the classical sense, but also offer guidance on what I would think of as you know, guidance on right view uh, in this time, like how do we relate to our lives and and the world from from the perspective of of the Dhamma?
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're saying the unique way that Spirit Rock mission was set up to incorporate these teachings and the style and dissemination of the teachings led to a year like 2020 just being so disastrous and upsetting and disruptive on so many levels that inherent in your mission were the tools in bringing the teachings to this strange reality and unexpected series of events that we're living through and um, perhaps more smoothly trying to apply those to a very unsmooth situation. But there might have been some background in your mission that gave you the tools to look as teachers, administrators, and how to respond in the most appropriate way. I think that's
1: absolutely true on a, you know, on a, on a heart level in a way. Like, I think we know, uh, we, as a, as a, as a lineage broadly, um, I think we're pretty good at this walking this line between the external and the internal. Um, there's a, there's a lot to learn there. You know, we've been in, uh, we've, we've been in a, a deep and, and multiple decades process of, you know, learning how to. Uh, how to address, for instance, the the historical um, uh, white centered nature of the Insight Meditation lineage, uh, for instance, and mm-hmm. working on diversity and equity and inclusion in various ways, and diversifying our teaching pool, and you know, a lot of effort in that way. So, and many things have been difficult, you know, but I think. What you're speaking to, you know, at the heart of our mission is the transmission of the dhamma, the preservation of the dhamma, but also the, you know, California 2020 is not uh, Myanmar of any era. You know, it's not the Thai forest. It's certainly not. Um, it's certainly not. You know, uh, Magadha in the fifth century. Um, before the Common Era, even though that's where we take our texts from, so we're we're as as Buddhism has always done, as it comes to new cultures, we are translating and um and and reinventing when when necessary all the time. Uh, but I think that the the bones are there to give us a strong spiritual and kind of view response to to changing conditions. The challenges are often really in the details, like this year. You know, like a lot of centers, we've been challenged to maintain revenue. We had to let go of a whole bunch of staff. Uh, certainly, mm. a, lo- a lot of our on land staff uh, we had to furlough, mm. um, which was really hard decision to make. We've, uh, you know, we're certainly not we're certainly not making the revenue in you know online retreats as we would in on with people you know coming to retreats on the land, um, and. But in in beautiful trade offs, you know, the online retreats can suddenly reach people all around the world, and people don't have to fly to California to do it. And right, um, but but the technical aspect of you know uh, turning uh, turning a uh, an in person residential you know retreat center um, into essentially an online media company, uh, mm. you know, that's not entirely. Uh, It's not entirely obvious, you know, how to do that. And we weren't doing that before. You know, we, we are, uh, we're, we're a bunch, we, we are an organization that got really good at, at putting on live retreats and, and suddenly, you know, teachers are having to learn new technology. Um, Everything's changing. Uh, And as we, so that like the spiritual side is fine. Everyone's like, yep, everything changes. But, Mm -hmm. but in the relative, it's like everything changes and, you know, how do I do a breakout group again on Zoom? Like, like, you know, mm-hmm. h- how do we record things in a decent enough resolution, and where do we post them, and and what's up with server space, and you know, a million things, um, right? That are just ordinary, the world, you know, needing to be to be engaged with,
0: right? And looking technically at what it was you did and how you decided it to what extent were you basing those decisions on like local county or state guidelines and to what extent were you were you making your own decisions based on uh consultation with your own staff and and your own understanding and where did your decisions on the correct action the 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 process that you took where did they uh, originate from
1: like for like for sh- for for closing the live center for instance like like covid right, guidelines right.
0: for Closing the center, or who who was allowed there, under what capacity, or if and when to reopen? What what are those decisions uh, based on?
1: Right, you know, I I think it's uh, uh, if if I want to keep you know basing our decisions in, in some way, you know, going back to the, to the precepts and you know to our formal practice, you know, if if I want to not cause harm, uh, um, and we and we are part of the Theravada, which is a you know a, a rather conservative. Lineage, um, Buddhistically speaking, Uh, you know we we've we've made decisions that are relatively conservative. Uh, So we've we've gone you know fully with state and county guidelines, of course. And our thinking at the moment is you know we're going to stay closed and offer things only online until it feels you know ethically responsible to to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. So you know that will mean balancing our sense of what the relative. Risks are for you know gathering for a retreat, for instance. You know, is there a, is there a point where we'll be able to you know have a retreat but have it be only half capacity, for instance? You know, people only in single rooms and and there's all sorts of considerations, you know. But we're we're tracking the official guidelines, um, the CDC guidelines, the state guidelines, uh, primarily the state since the states are all different. Mm-hmm. And and right in this very moment, you know, there's it's it's not looking good, right? California is entering new shutdowns. Sure, we basically are planning to to stay online only through September of 2021. I see, and this is partly because to open an on land, you know, residential retreat, uh, you have to give people. Quite a bit of notice, uh, both teachers and bringing staff back and and students registering for it and being able to plan for it. So, you know, not knowing when that'll be or how the surges will happen of the pandemic, uh, there's no way for us to be like, oh, we think that there, are, you know, the vaccine will make everything good by May or June, and therefore mm-hmm. we don't even know about September. We're, we're we're kind of just putting like parentheses around everything from next fall on. Right. You know, we're booking things like we're booked out through, you know, for a couple of years for long retreats, but we can't really say, you know, oh, this retreat will probably be online, but maybe at the last minute we'll change our minds and and have it be in person. You know, that just wouldn't work. Right. So we're so we're actually just making I think, you know, uh, a fairly conservative line at being like we're you know, you can just rely on it being all Online through September, you know, and and we'll see, we'll see from there. And I'm I'm hopeful that by the middle of the year, we'll have you know a a very clear sense of whether the vaccines are happening and and how the global situation is looking. And um, you know, and that would give us a few months out to start, uh, you know, putting the pieces in place to get back on the land.
0: So you described the mood of the center when the seriousness and the gravity of the pandemic dawned on people and you had to scramble like everyone else to make decisions of what exactly to do and how to adapt uh, to it. There was a period as, as we track the, the spread of the pandemic uh, in the US where there were several months where it just felt like, okay, everyone hunker down. We have to. This is a new normal. We have to get through this. And then as it passed into summer and out of summer, there was a feeling of like, wow, this is, you know, all this this uh, kind of stay at home and this new normal that we were adjusting to, this looks like it's not going to be ending anytime soon. And there was another adjustment that people and organizations had to make that this is kind of the world that we're now living in for who knows how long to come. And so with that mindset of the progression of the pandemic and also the awareness of the length of the pandemic, the open-ended quality of that, not just a, a rough period you have to get through, but more of an open-ended thing that we don't know how long and to what extent it's going to last. Was there an adjustment around that awareness in your center that, that moved from taking responses in the moment to uh, realizing the severity at the start to then realizing this is something we might have to live with for, for some time and having to change and adjust even more or again on that level?
1: I think that that kind of adjustment has happened in a way like three or four times in the course of the year. You know, there's, a, there's, there's an initial like, oh God, you know, like what are we gonna do this weekend, you know, for the event? And then there's like, okay, this looks bad. Let's start, let's figure out what to do next month. Um, and then there's longer term thinking. One of the things that has been, I think, you know a, a hidden blessing in this for us is that we have had plans for a long time to strengthen our online presence and our uh, our workflows and you know processes for putting the Dharma out online So uh, you know we've been pecking away at that for some years uh, doing you know various things uh, you know streaming some events, getting things going and that's been fine and this year has been uh, a little bit like, all of those things that we want to do anyway are now the the thing we have to do right away, and so it's really given us, you know, the space and and urgency to transition to you know a much more robust virtual offering uh, more quickly than we might have otherwise. You know, so we're building out you know a new website and we're you know working on. A podcast and uh, working with our archives and you know converting things to formats that we can use, putting out online courses, and really ramping up our whole virtual offering and um, and that's something that we should have done anyway. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know should right? That's something that that we were in the process of doing anyway. and in a sense, it's the thing that we would need to do anyway to to really grow into the 21st century mm-hmm. So we always needed to do it now we're doing it fast right right because it's the only revenue we have you know uh, uh, and, and that's partly what I came into the organization in this position to to work on to really okay to really work on that that aspect um, And so you know with a with a deep, uh, bow to the suffering of the pandemic, which I would never wish upon the world, but is the nature of the world, it's pretty exciting for me to come in in a moment when, uh, you know, this is a classic like tech industry thing to say, right? It's sort of, you know, big <laughs> big disruption. Everything has been disrupted. Mm-hmm. So there's an mm-hmm. opportunity to do something uh, different, something new and different. Sure. And and a lot of mm-hmm. our our fellow organizations, our sister organizations, you know, other organizations within Insight Meditation, um, like Insight Meditation Society, um, and also, you know, sibling Buddhist organizations, you know, like Wisdom Publishers, for instance, which is doing beautifully at this. A lot of places, you know, uh, Upaya is doing beautifully at this. Have really risen to the, you know, not just the challenge of the pandemic, but the the possibilities of the twenty first century and you know deep interconnectedness to really do what was this core. Instruction of the Buddhas to spread the Dharma. You know, I've really been thinking during this year of the pandemic about Buddhism as uh, having this this instruction to to spread the teachings. You know, when when the Buddha says to to the first you know sixty uh, Arahants, you know, uh, go, you know, let let no two of you go even by the same road uh, and spread the Dharma for the welfare of the of of people. Uh, I, I really feel that in this moment of like, oh, we're putting things out that can be that can be streamed by anybody anywhere in the world, and that's so different from people being able to just like mm-hmm. come to our kind of you know gorgeous, comfortable retreat center in Marin County, which is fabulous, you know. And you know, to people in in the mysterious future, please do come. It's great, but mm-hmm. but what we get to do right now, you know, of of really spreading spreading the Dharma in in this form that we've that we're so grateful to have received from the Burmese and Thai traditions, you know, and the other uh, source traditions in our lineage, you know, it's such a it's such an honor to be able to build out something that can that can really spread the teachings in this way quite quite broadly.
0: Right, and that segues into my next question because in the world, a lot of businesses and offices have had to, by necessity, have had to innovate in all kinds of ways that were they would never consider were off the table or were completely out of the box because we'd never been in this situation before. And in the work world, there's new ways of innovations that companies are saying, hey, this is actually not a bad idea. We Not that we want to do this, this new idea full time like we have to now, but some of the things we're developing are not that bad to do once the pandemic ends and we go back to you know, normal life. We've now discovered some kind of innovation out of the necessity of these times we're living in. So when it comes to spiritual organization and spiritual teachings, have there been ways that you found that you've innovated out of necessity, but that process of innovation is actually something you might want to hold on to even after the pandemic ends and do in normal times?
1: It's a great question. Absolutely, I think so. One of the main pieces that we've really identified uh, in the organization and and I, that I think has been very positive this year is that as a residential retreat center for a long time, in a way one of the, the weakest aspects of how we were able to transmit the Dharma was in the integration between uh, formal silent retreat and home practice. We would, we would always talk about you know integrating your practice at home. At the end of retreat, and teachers would teach on you know practice out in the world, as it were, or in relationship, or at work, or things. But because the bulk of our uh, teaching was done in the context of retreat, uh, there was always a bit of a gap there. You know, we're not we're not a neighborhood temple or monastery where people are you know coming just for the uposatha day and you know like a Sabbath, you know, and then being just fully integrated in family and and work. So we weren't we weren't giving a stream of teachings oriented toward people not on retreat. And and so there was always a little bit of a like people would, you know, in on every retreat basically for, you know, decades people would at the end of the retreat would be like this is amazing, you know, my practice is in a whole new place, my mind state is is you know is different than it ever is. Mm-hmm. Now I have to go back and 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 be with my, you know, my family, my spouse, my kids, my my work and and I'm a little scared. Yeah, how do I do that? And and we would always try to figure out, you know, how to answer that question, but now with this this form, this basically new practice form of intensive home retreat that we've been doing online and that a lot of places have really ramped up we have something we have a formal practice that is kind of halfway between the usual home practice was just like encouraging people, you know, okay, go home, mm. you know, meditate every day, keep the precepts, try to speak wisely, good luck out there right Like that's home that's home practice, right uh-huh. um, between that and and retreat practice, which was like, okay, keep noble silence, <laughs> sit ten hours a day, yeah. walk slowly, you know. Uh huh. Different world. There's a gulf between those worlds. Yeah. In a way, going back to you know that that opening bit about like in the world, not in the world. At the very least, they're they're different, very different ways of being in the world. And so now we have this this structure of intensive home retreat uh, where people are you know setting aside a bunch of days in whatever way they can. Like some people you know, fully going into noble silence at home, other people, you know, just tuning in for the calls, but trying to simplify as best they can, mm-hmm. you know, some people fitting it in, you know, but they still have to do a little bit of work, you know, um, like it's so flexible, right. but then folks are, are, you know, getting on doing morning chanting, sitting in meditation together. Um, hearing instructions in a in a systemic way over several days, sitting several times a day together, doing you know meta practice together, hearing a talk mm-hmm. together, asking mm-hmm, asking questions, mm-hmm. and it's really like oh this this is the integration retreat mm-hmm. that we were always kind of looking for. Mm, interesting, you know it's like oh it's integrated because you know there's no way to disintegrate. It's not like you can you know unless you live alone and then you. You know, it's more like a retreat. But even then, you know, it's not like your neighbors know that you're on retreat and are going to like not play ACDC or something, whatever they're, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, there I was in Burma, somebody's practicing Madonna next door. Like, like right. The, in a way, home retreat is like that, uh-huh. only mo- even more at home. You know, here comes my kid wow. running, running in, and <laughs> and you know, I do extra long practice in the morning, and then I have to go and you know, go to the store and cook for myself rather than you know the very nice cooks at Spirit Rock making me extraordinary food. People would be like, I come to Spirit Rock just for the food; it's so good, and like <laughs> somebody cooks for me and cleans up for me, basically, and you know, just that is a retreat and. And home retreat is now like okay, work meditation. Go do your own dishes, <laughs> like clean your own house, you know.
2: Sure.
1: Um, but even more so, like okay, do a bunch of practice. Now do some loving kindness practice. Now go play with your kid, and then come back for the talk at seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that that this is a wonderful innovation, really, mm-hmm. that um, that will absolutely continue past pandemic time. Like our our plans oh, right. at Spirit Rock, are really like when we resume on land. Retreats. I, I know that we'll continue to have a robust virtual offering, and and we'll definitely still offer you know some home retreats. And in a sense, it's both home retreats, and it's also like one other piece is that I think of it in relation to climate and and climate change. And you know, as much as I'm thrilled for people to come from far away to Spirit Rock to sit retreat, I have students in you know South America, in Europe, and whatnot. And when we started, when I started doing home retreats. This year, I had students say, "You know, like I would love to have flown to California to sit meditation you know with you all, but um it's actually great i'm just here in you know in my home in Colombia or wherever mm-hmm. and this is great, like don't fly people like it's uh there's there's this way that like oh, people could be on retreat from anywhere basically uh, mm-hmm. any anywhere that the time zones you know allow and and I think this is also really." Uh, wise action in in the time of climate change, not just for not just for covid
0: right, and it seems neat to think of these timeless teachings of the Buddha that were delivered in a very different time and era of our own being so adaptable and seeing how they can be uh, all kinds of different world and social and political economic situations, technical situations, how those same core of timeless teachings. Can continue to be adapted so that they're relevant and useful and practical for people living their lives in the time and era that they are.
1: This has always been the heart of the the lineage that the Buddha began. You know, it was um, it was not a place based lineage. <laughs> it wasn't like this is the holy mountain, this is the holy river. Uh, in in a, in a way that wouldn't travel, right? It was, um, and in in that sense, it was already uh, it was already. A step away from indigeneity, right? He, the Buddha didn't say this is the sacred religion of you know the the Magadha area. Mm-hmm, sure, you know he, he really said you know th- these are teachings that that do translate, right? In in that story where he has the arhans go, go out and you know spread the dhamma, he also says you know teaching the language of the people. He says teaching the vernacular, you know. And,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so there's always been this this process, you know that. In the West, anyway, we could call it evangelical, right? This kind of spreading the Dhamma process where it changes. You know, it, it changed when it went to China and encountered Taoism and Confucianism and and you know, new doctrines came in and old doctrines were shifted. And, you know, it changed as it got rooted in the Tibetan plateau and met the local spirits there, the local deities. Mm-hmm. And and in a sense, invited them in, you know, or 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 Buddhism was invited in to what was already there, you know, and they 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 mixed. And in this way, when the Dharma came to the West, both in the stream of the many immigrant communities that established Buddhism here, um, and then later in the, we could say, other immigrant communities, white folks who went to Asia and and brought folks back here, um, in and you know into the convert lineages, convert Zen, convert Theravada, etc., um, it has in all of those instances it has morphed and changed to meet the times and the to meet the new place and given how many, how much crisis the world has seen and how deeply Buddhism in in many different places has has met the crises as they've arisen uh, mm-hmm. this this in a sense to me feels you know within my lifetime it feels like oh this is this kind of big cataclysm but it's not apocalyptic you know this is not the end of the right. world this is actually just right. more of the world there's always been pandemics there's always been wars there's always been the end of empire mm-hmm. and buddhism has has persisted uh in this relatively stable in some cases format changing all the time but there's been a persistent uh you know core to it for for really this you know very long period the way that folks say that the theravada Monastic organization is the oldest continually operating corporation in the world.
0: Uh, <laughs> I haven't heard that.
1: Right? Corporation meaning operating by the same set of bylaws. Right. right? With right. the Vinaya as the bylaws. Yeah. This is a very stable institution. Mm, good point. You know. And and so I feel uh, it, it, it actually buoys my spirit living in what feels to me sometimes like a very apocalyptic time mm-hmm. to to feel that you know it has changed tremendously and and you know colonialism changed it tremendously, but uh, but the core insights that the Buddha put forward seem to continue to communicate in a in a relatively direct way like we read you know you read a good translation of of the suttas and you get it like the the insight hits you it's it's still available um, and and this. This is really just a source of of faith for me, you know that, that the Buddha Sasana, that the dispensation of the Buddha, is still, the wheel is still rolling, you know, um, and I think this is this is a beautiful beautiful thing to to take part in uh, in this time.
0: Right, right. So we've talked a bit about the teachers, the administrators, how the center operated, what's been going on in the world, uh, what you've done with courses, the area I'd like to turn to next is the students themselves and looking at it from their perspective. You've obviously dealt with a number of students as a teacher, I assume also as an administrator or or server or helper somehow. You've seen their spiritual struggles and successes uh, over many years. Looking at what students are going through now, do you see any shift in kind of what people are going through, what's coming up, how they're working with it? Or do you just see kind of more of the same as it's been. It's just uh, it's it's uh, the same process, but it's just a different way that it's being taken on with the details.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting question. I would be interested to hear what you know. Some of our students directly would say about that. Um, mm-hmm. From my perspective, one of the things that seems most prominent in relation to to this year, particularly in COVID is is isolation that you know uh, that we we hold as as profoundly central to the to the Dharma that spiritual community um, is is tremendously important and and so you know people come on retreat or they come to to sitting groups and and they really feel like they they have a community of like-minded folks, a community a spiritual community to resonate with. And it's just not the same on a Zoom call. Like it's different. It's sure. it's wonderful in some ways. People are far away. Mm-hmm. You know, people are still connecting with each other. Humans have an extraordinary ability, it seems, to to keep figuring out how to connect with each other socially, relationally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, despite all obstacles. But there are totally people who we've lost you know, temporarily, mm. hopefully, you know, who mm-hmm. are just like, I, I've i heard it myself, you know, friends or folks that I know, students that I know have been like, I just can't really deal with another Zoom call. You mm. know, it's like I'm on Zoom meetings all day for work. I just, I can't, right, really, right. you know, come to the sitting group mm-hmm. at night and it's just another Zoom call, you know, and I get that. Like, yeah. How uh, how tired my eyes are of the screen, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and only seeing people um, you know, in these little glowy boxes, uh, and so you know we're we're resilient, but we're not um, you know we're not gluttons for punishment. So you know we've lost some folks for sure who just don't resonate with the virtual format, um, and and my hope is that the, you know those folks are. Enjoying their their non technological time as best they can, and practicing and getting support mm-hmm. in whatever way they can, and that they, of course, they come back. You know, as soon as we can gather in person together. But that's the that's one of the main things that I think about for the students this year is really um, is really the sense of isolation and a lot of what I'm trying to do in in my role at Spirit Rock and what many of us in the administration and the teaching body are trying to do is. To try to figure out how to how to bridge that gap, you know how to mm-hmm. how to do online events where folks actually do feel uh, more connected to each other. You know, more small groups. Um, you know, less noble silence, of course. More conversation. More ways for people to feel like they're actually in a room with other humans and not just you know on their couch alone, where they spend the whole rest of their time so trying to to respond to isolation is one and mm, you know and the other main thing in this year and this year and last year i'd say but really accelerating over the last several is a strong urge from you know, not not all but many parts of our practitioner community our student body to respond in a in a wise and and communal way to the the crisis of racism in this country and to figure out how to mm-hmm. how to respond as a community to the the political situation um, how do we as as Buddhists um, as convert Buddhists how do we respond as activists how do the traditions as we've uh, learned them, you know, from the the Theravada source traditions or from the other source traditions. How do they speak to social action, and really support what what feels like, you know, a very authentic and and you know, uh, strongly arising uh, uh, impulse uh, to to act to act wisely in this time of of mm-hmm. civic unrest and you know, it just seems like the times. Are are demanding a response, and and I think many of our many people in our student body feel that quite acutely, and then turn to us, you know, turn to their spiritual teachers broadly for guidance on how to uh, how to respond, how to be in social action through a Buddhist lens, through through a mindfulness lens, uh, and and that's a complex conversation. There's there's so many layers there, and. Sure. And I think a lot of what we've tried to do at Spirit Rock is, is uh, just keep that conversation, keep those conversations foreground for us mm-hmm. and really uh, give platform uh, to teachers uh, within our teaching body that that are really speaking to that. So to, to try to amplify using whatever platform we have, whatever cultural weight we have as a large center to... Uh, to really lean into supporting uh, teachers who are active in the intersection of of the dharma and and social justice and anti oppression work, uh, and and really build the a, a Buddhist side of the conversation um, in this country that is that sometimes runs in parallel to the progressive left, but other times doesn't. You know, but and really, but that draws on Buddhist principles, draws on the dharma, is grounded in the dharma. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that's a long-term project, right. but one that's been quite acute in the in recent years, and and really, I think, very beautifully central in the concerns of our student body.
0: Yeah, this is a time for it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much for taking that time to share all of this. You really have a lot of great things going on, and it's wonderful to hear about how you've been developing in spite of these. Difficult conditions. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add? I want to
1: mainly just wish everyone well, um, safety in this in this precarious time. And I encourage folks to come and check us out at SpiritRock.org. See what we're offering. Check out the home retreats and and the various things that you can now stream from anywhere. And really to hold. The principles of the Dharma and the, you know the inspiration that we get from this from this tradition, uh, just close in our hearts as we as we find our way together through this very challenging time. So all of us at Sri Rock just offer our blessings to everyone listening uh, for our practice and for getting through this as the wheel continues to turn.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, and best luck with everything you're doing. And thank you for the services that you're providing for a larger meditator community spread around the world now.
1: Thank you so much. Such a pleasure talking with you.
0: Aya Soma, thank you so much for joining us here on the Insight Myanmar podcast.
3: Thank you for having me today.
0: Yeah, great. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your monastery, Empty Cloud Monastery, at the time before this whole pandemic hit? What were the normal activities? What were the normal offerings in times more normal than what we're living in right now?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so I don't think it was ever normal for us mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because we actually moved into the new place. Um, uh, so in Empty uh, Cloud Monastery in West Orange, New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, at the end of December uh 2019 so like a couple of months before the pandemic started kicking in um here in the United States and before that we were in uh Rockaway Beach in New York City mm-hmm. for 4 years so it was an entirely different setup and setting and neighborhood so we moved in at the end of December we Started, actually, we inaugurated uh, the new monastery with a month-long jhana retreat. Wow. Uh, (laughs) So we had um, lots of friends, um, lay friends who came to practice with us uh, at the monastery because we wanted to set, you know, to start the new place with the right vibe, with a good, solid chunk of meditation practice. And, you know, also start the year the right foot. And then after that, uh we kind of um I guess we we started um getting familiar with the neighborhood, with the new neighborhood where we were. So uh, we were doing a little bit of what we were we had been doing for four years mm-hmm. in uh, Rockway Rockaway Beach, which was offering uh meditation retreats, um uh dharma um, sutta study retreats led by Uh, monks and nuns of all different Buddhist traditions. And um, so we had Venerable Chanda come and join us and uh, leading a weekend retreat uh, from the UK. We had some of the friends from the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition come and lead uh, Days of Mindfulness uh, uh, we had venerable Damadipa from California uh, lead another five day retreat, and then lots of different workshops to wel- welcome the people in the neighborhood who we were very excited about uh, having a Buddhist monastery finally uh, close to home since we are the only one in this particular area
2: mm. of
3: um, of well of the country but definitely in New Jersey. So as we were, you know, getting familiar, getting acquainted uh, to the, the new settings, new buildings, new community, new, new family of people, the pandemic started, we had to, you know, kind of reconfigure everything from scratch. Sure. But it's been both, you know, um, something really mm, dramatic for a lot of people. But also, it's been a blessing for a lot of people in, in so many ways, uh, this pandemic. So our community has uh, obviously had a lot of different struggles, like everyone else, like every you know person, I think, around the world, really, uh, in these times. But at the same time, it kind of uh, created the conditions for our newborn uh, monastery to somewhat develop and um, take shape and a lot of... Different people have joined um, this community. In the meanwhile, some have decided to go forth. (laughs) Uh, So we have Pante Sumano, who's been a good friend for um, several years from Jamaica, who decided Mm -hmm. to go forth in this monastery this summer. And uh, we have some other friends that looks like they're going to get into robes in the next couple of weeks.
0: (laughs) Going forth, by that you mean ordaining into a monastic life of being a a monk or nun.
3: Correct. Yes. Yes. So we are a gender-inclusive monastery. Um, So we have uh, monastics. We use the word monk, actually, as um, Mm -hmm. gender-neutral. So we all define ourselves as monks, so whether it's male monks or female monks. Right now, I'm the only bikuni at the monastery, but um, we have some... Uh, female aspirants that are uh, joining um, as residents and want to go forth so yeah so it's exciting amidst the the drama
0: (laughs) it sounds that way yeah so it, it sounds like you you guys have been really active as a buddhist monastery and with diverse buddhist activities in new york city and your move to upstate with probably all the plans and programs you were looking to run just coincided with this whole pandemic hitting us as it hit all of us and various unexpected stations and moments in our life. And you had to adjust. Uh, do you remember like a, I think that the pandemic didn't come in a certain day, but the realization of how serious it was did come to us at different times. So I'm wondering if there was a specific moment at the monastery where you all kind of looked at each other and realized how serious this was and that this was going to be a disruption of what your plans and hopes were and when that hit you, how you felt and how you responded and what course of action you took.
3: Yeah. Um, Yeah, thank you for asking. That's very important because I feel uh, actually it was a big teaching of – Uh, great hatred and delusion especially a lot of delusion so not wanting to really uh, look at the gravity of the situation I think we've all experienced that at a certain point but I'm originally from Italy so I was born and bred there and um, Italy was one of the first countries who was severely hit Um, so I have several friends that also have been affected by COVID-19 so it somewhat happened um, you know since in Italy it happened earlier on than the United States I was lucky enough to to come to an awareness of the severity of the pandemic you know earlier than before the actually New Jersey the state of New Jersey and the state of New York understood how Severe um, and how bad it was. So before the lockdown, so Empty Cloud Monastery went on lockdown mode in lockdown mode before <laughs> mm. before the actual state. Um, I see that was it, one of my
0: questions. Yeah,
3: yeah, and that was mainly actually we had gone to Thailand for two weeks in February, and that was when there was some sort of awareness that the pandemic was spreading throughout the the world but I have to say that back then I wasn't taking it very seriously unfortunately as well as other you know lay friends or other um, monastic friends it was a little bit too early because we couldn't see any symptoms so, so that's why I'm saying it's been a great teaching of delusion because <laughs> sometimes all the you know the the facts and all the the material is there but we decide not to see it um, because it's uncomfortable And then as we came back, all the news started coming from Italy. And at the same time, there was a lot of anxiety because we had just moved here and the monastery is new and we actually have a mortgage. It hasn't been paid all in full, the building. So there were all the concerns of um, how are we going to survive, you know, without... without actually seeing people and offering um, dharma programs, offering retreats. Um, So it was a real concern in the mind. We're not, you know, um, an organization. We're a very grassroots organization. We're not supported by any uh, pre-existing community of either Asian Buddhists or, you know, we're not part of a larger organization. So the struggle was real, so to speak. Um, So at the same time, we had all these retreats scheduled. Actually, it was the first one in March was supposed to be led by myself and Bhante Sudaso, who is the co-founder with myself of Empty Cloud Monastery and Buddhist Insights, the non-profit. And we just looked at each other and with the information that we had from my family and friends in Italy and from the newspapers there, we just had to do what felt compassionate. And we were like, well, if we're going to close the monastery because of this, well, so be it. But we can't risk um, the health of the people that are coming here um, on the retreat. So we canceled the retreat and we just locked everything down and and we were kind of resigned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to any sort of possible outcome, and I have to say that people have been incredibly supportive and generous, which is why we're still we still have a monastery in November 2020, and we still have food to eat. Uh, people have been coming to to feed us on a regular basis, so, so lots of gratitude. I have to say, lots of gratitude.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. Can you describe a little something of the the trustees, the management, or the teachers when? you came to the conclusion that, so first the pandemic hit, right? And then you realize this is a serious thing. We need to lock down and it's a disruption of normal life. But then for everyone, it doesn't go away and it still is not going away. We don't know how long it's going to stay with us. So it's not just an uncomfortable or disruptive period we have to get through, but it's kind of this everlasting dukkha that we don't, we have no knowledge or sense of, of when we're going to come out of it. And once some of the people at your monastery started to gain that realization that we don't know when this is going to go away, we don't know how long this um, lockdown or unusual circumstances are going to be in place. How did that begin to affect uh, the the mission and um, attitude at the center, at the monastery, I should say?
3: Yeah. Um, of course, there being lots of different minds involved uh, in the organization besides myself and Bhante Sudazas. <laughs> different people have different reactions. So there's um, either you know, anxiety, agitation, um, financial concerns, as I was mentioning, or perhaps also just concerns of how, are, how can we be uh, still a supportive presence for people? Because in a way, you know, spiritual practice is an essential business for the well-being, for the mental health of people. Um, so how can we support people's mental health and at the same time support also their physical health? Um, so that was a matter of, of debate here. Like, how could, we, how could we meet all of these requirements? And there was a bit of brainstorming, but there was a time constraint as well in terms of, you know, making the decision of whether to shut down the monastery or have the retreat that I was mentioning earlier. And so back then, actually, you know, also in Italy or in Europe, where um, people were hit pretty badly, actually, they they were mentioning, you know, a three week lockdown or a four week lockdown, something like that. So we were like, okay, well, that sounds reasonable. Basically, we're just going to shut down for a month. And then Take it from there, and so we decided to actually offer <laughs> uh, support to people mm, online. Uh, so we were one of the first organizations that offered live streams straight away because it seemed like the sort of most sane thing to do. <laughs> and um, we actually did it did it in a little bit insane way, uh, which was offering two live streams a day every day. Um, so we were. Having uh, between fourteen to sixteen um, live streams, so we also offered retreats back in um, in March and and April, and we we're like, okay, well, we're gonna do this till the end of the pandemic, <laughs> thinking that it was like four weeks, um, but then it became five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks, ten weeks. Right. Right. And in June, actually, we were pretty exhausted, uh, like myself, Pante Sudazo, um, and the um, three other residents that were here at the at the monastery. So we're only five actually residing here. And so that that's when we were like, okay, we need to scale down a little bit and because it seems like this um, is not a problem that is going to be resolved in um, – well, definitely hasn't been resolved in three weeks, nor in four weeks, nor in one month, two months, three months, four months – but at the same time, you know, start looking at our at our practice. So finding a balance between giving and between giving to others and giving to ourselves. And at the same time, we also started food programs to feed people, families in need here at Empty Cloud. So there has been a lot of food insecurity, obviously given uh, the problems of the pandemic, um, especially immigrant communities here. That comprise uh, a lot of essential workers, so in particular, the Hispanic community was really hit in the area that we are uh, where we live in, so mm-hmm. um, we kind of just looked at what we could do, uh, what was in our means of mm, of ability to help uh, our immediate neighbors as well as you know our our Dharma friends in the online sphere, and then as the summer Hit in, then we also started doing as much as possible outdoor programs, and that we keep on doing. And now it's the end of November, so it's becoming significantly colder. Uh, But this weekend, since the temperature is raising, it's going a little up for a couple of days. uh, We're offering a meditation and hiking retreat at the reservation Hmm. uh, close by. um, So people can both do, you know, practice social distancing, but at the same time, uh, you know, practice mindfulness and um, get a little bit grounded and and learn that actually a lot of times certain situations can be actually great opportunities uh, to really understand the teachings, especially if, you know, of course, if someone is into Buddhist practice, a lot of times we talk about the four noble truths and we really overlook the first noble truth of suffering. And we You know, we kind of take it for granted, go, okay, yes, there's suffering. Let me get, let me just work on getting out of it. And so, this, I think, creates the conditions to overlook what the Buddha is really talking about in terms of suffering, which is not just, you know, I don't like my job or I'm not satisfied in my relationship or, you know, things are not that great. They could be better. But we're talking about old age, sickness, and death. And during this pandemic, It was impossible. It is impossible. It's not was. It is impossible Mm -hmm. to overlook Mm -hmm. this real truth of what we're talking about. There are people dying. There is this incredible, fast, quick sickness that takes people and and kills them. And it's awful. It's incredibly horrible. And it affects the elder people even more. So... It is uh like within this suffering, it's important to to take the time to to really learn from it and understand why it's important than to under you see the cause of suffering, enter in the end of suffering and follow the path for the cessation of suffering. so it's a very powerful, I would say mm, you know teaching that. That 2020 is giving us.
0: So you've shared a number of ways that you've innovated with under the current circumstances, like offering different kinds of courses, offering Zoom and uh, teachings online that weren't done uh, prior to to the extent you're doing now. What kind of response have you seen to some of these offerings on, on the part of the students?
3: Oh, people have been extremely grateful. So we have we actually use YouTube Live for most of the things that we do, um, so I think that gave people so a bit of a break from uh, the Zoom offerings <laughs> that are more interactive, I guess. So some of our some of our friends were quite happy to just, you know, use YouTube and type. I guess us Buddhists were a little bit more introverted. <laughs> sometimes so um yeah people were quite happy it also allowed interestingly enough uh many people to have more access to the dharma because they live in places where there's not um you know a temple close by uh so we had people from the midwest uh, log in um or just different places where a lot of people from florida uh, where there's not They didn't have prior to the pandemic the opportunity to go and learn at a temple, learn from monastics. So, yeah, actually, we made a lot of new virtual friends that go from, you know, Malaysia all the way to Italy, actually, to my home country, Mm -hmm. Um, going by Arkansas and (laughs) different states, uh, uh, Oklahoma here in the United States. So, that has been, I have to say, a beautiful gift to to be able to have the opportunity to share the Dharma with so many people. Sure. Um, And who've been very grateful um, that this was finally available. And from there to be able to point them out also to different monasteries. Sometimes they were actually close to monasteries, um, close to Dharma centers, but they weren't aware of it. Uh, so one of the missions of Buddhist Insights, the nonprofit profit that Bhante Sudazo and myself started uh, five years ago, is to connect people with monastics. So uh, a lot of times people, you know, get in touch with us, um, but we don't, you know, just tell them, okay, stay with Buddhist Insights and that's it. Um, listen only to Ayasoma and Bhante Sudazo, but rather um, also point them out to, to other monastics and also different traditions. So yeah, our, some of the friends in Australia, we point them out to uh, our friends like Banti Sujato, Banti Akaliko, who are also offering live streams on a regular basis, Sajan Brahm, of course, or people in England, Venerable Chanda, as well as, you know, all our friends at Amaravati uh, here in the US. So similarly, if they have chant centers close to them, close by or wherever, if we have resources presenting them. And so people... will had the opportunity once again to have to start building relationships um with communities um that then they can also join in person once things will get hopefully in um you know sort of more humane <laughs> level of interaction um outside rather than just digital yeah, we also, once again, got lots of people here, uh, at the new monastery. We're in the suburbs, actually. So we're not in the forest nor in the city. We're in a bit of an in-between. And we have quite a, a bit of, um, uh, quite a few acres, not, not that much, not that many acres, but a few acres uh, large enough to have outdoor programs. So we're with um, quite a few people. So it definitely. Was a source of uh, wholesomeness, so people could come, still, you know, be together with other kalyanamitas, uh, spiritual friends, uh, but at the same time protect their health, be, you know, social distancing. So yeah, the reception has been incredibly good, and um, once again, people have been extremely generous. So they also had the opportunity to uh, to practice uh, the virtuous qualities that the Buddha encouraged us to develop and supporting the monastic sangha. And we've been, and that's how we're still alive today. We also had some, they also donated uh, some beautiful Buddha statues uh, here at the monastery. We have a Guanyin Bodhisattva now. <laughs> so yeah, we, we've been showered with, uh, with blessings, I have to say. We're very grateful.
0: Yeah that's great to hear you know sometimes when a difficult situation hits human nature can respond in any number of ways and i think times like this allow us to see the strength of some of our institutions and and the different parts of our human nature so it's great to hear that at a time of difficulty like this you're actually having people uh step up in some ways even perhaps above and beyond in the normal flow of things and that actually leads to the next question i have staying on the topic of uh, the student's response to some of the activities you're doing and what you're noticing you know in your position as a spiritual teacher, you've worked with a wide range of students over the course of their own journey and some of the struggles and issues they go through. You might have seen some patterns given where you are and who you' what types of people you're working with as the pandemic has continued to progress what are you seeing in the shape of like how the uh, meditators and practitioners that are coming to you or that are hearing your discourses, are you seeing different kinds of issues or struggles or things they're working through than other times that uh, before the pandemic?
3: Um, Actually, yes. Well, you know, the pandemic here in the U.S., Contrarily to where I'm originally from, uh, where it kind of hit pretty much anyone uh, throughout the spectrum of society. So whether you were on sort of the wealthier side or on the lower uh, end of the the spectrum within the society, you know, it didn't it didn't really see um, any sort of differences. But here in the U.S., um, for obviously the complicated history of this country, it has hit uh significantly mm, more uh people of color um uh, so who have been affected pretty badly uh by the, the pandemic and it was obvious it was obvious um, also here in, in New Jersey. And so this created obviously also the conditions for I'm pretty sure you followed the news. So in uh, in the spring, for for several, you know, with George, the killing of George Floyd, for Mm -hmm. a lot of um, issues that are of discrimination and of racism that have never been resolved here in the United States uh, to come to the surface and for them to become a sort of subject of conversation. And um, here in At Buddhist Insights, um, historically, we've had a very diverse group of practitioners. Um, So half of the people identify as people of color, and they come from the most diverse backgrounds. So we have literally every single continent represented (laughs) at uh, at Buddhist Insights. And, um, And also the age range, Um, is on the younger side as well. So most people are between 20 and 40, um, historically. So obviously, all of these issues uh, were coming, were very present, were very much subject of discussion. And what was apparent in all the spiritual circles, whether they were Buddhist or not Buddhist was the what we can call you know tendency of spiritual bypassing so if people not feeling heard uh, or not getting whatever they were presenting as struggles that they were experiencing as uh, issues that were being acknowledged and that created actually i have to say um from us monastics um, we came to a point where we realized that even though we were actually addressing these issues, we hadn't really made an actual statement. Um, and that not making an actual statement, but only talking about these issues within Dhamma talks had created, was contributing to this, um, this sort of um, confusion of what, how is a Buddhist practitioner supposed to um deal with the, with these issues, so banty Sudazo and I started talking about it and seeing how this was creating a lot of suffering in um a lot of the people that we know and in the community at large. so we decided to actually make um a statement and have a kind of q and live live stream q and a with people asking us questions of what we thought about uh the subject matter. We also participated in one of the uh, black lives matters how do you say protests um here in um in jersey and we thought that you know it was the right time to make actual strong statements that racism is not okay and that discriminating on on people is against the buddhist teachings so so I would say that these were were the struggles that came up and whether we did you know a good job or not in addressing them it's not up to me to say uh, but what i think is what has been a good lesson from that is is the understanding that there have to be more conversations about this and as dharma teachers uh, as monastics as whatever kind of role we have uh, within buddhist communities it's very important not to be silent uh, not to be complicit of discrimination, um, but actually, uh, be very clear in what is in accordance to Dhamma and what is not in accordance to dharma. Dharma centers should be, or monasteries should be, places for refuge for people. It shouldn't be just a place where you go and feel good and don't think about anything, but actually, it should be a place where people are also heard and. You know, hugged whether physically or you know spiritually, metaphorically speaking. Uh, But where they feel welcome, then we have the courage to to discuss these things instead of pretending that you know there is no self. So um, you know, nobody should get annoyed about being discriminated upon. I guess what I'm trying to say is that sometimes uh, these these teachings are so precious so beautiful the dharma is incredibly powerful but it can be used in a way that is not helpful can be used in a way that actually is oppressing people and then turning them away from the teachings of the buddha instead of being used skillfully as a vehicle for liberation and the Buddha, once again, it's my understanding that he never turned away from suffering, but actually encouraged us to look, understand suffering deeply, look at it and transcend it, not pretend, oh, yeah, everything is okay, because there is no self. So like when, for example, Venerable Kisakutami, before she became a Venerable, lost her child, he didn't go just, um, oh, well, you know, of course, we all die. Um Well, but there is no self, so who cares? No, he acknowledged um, her suffering. He helped her out. He helped her understand the fact that death is not exclusive to one particular being, but it's a universal concept. It's something that applies to every single human that is born by one birth get one death free <laughs> so in the same way i think it's important to to have honest clear discussions about all of these issues i hope this answered your question
0: <laughs> yeah no that's very interesting i'm just reflecting that you know you're a monastery that is that has had a, a four year plus history of running these intensive meditation retreats by some of the great venerable teachers in the world who come to your center and that you have just recently moved to the countryside where you're, I presume, able to have a bit more open space and quiet and be able to, to sink more deeply into the silence. And then you got caught <laughs> in the year 2020, as we all are, where this barrage of worldly pain and storms just hit all of us. Uh, we, have, we haven't we have even talked about all, all of them and <laughs> there's no need to, but you know at least on the the subject of the pandemic and the race concerns these are enough and these are these are quite quite serious and it sounds like your monastery made the decision to pivot towards them and even though you had had this program and this plan for these more intensive retreats both with the pandemic as well as some of the protests that were going on that you put your resources and teachings not only into the spiritual field of still doing some kind of mindfulness retreats as was possible with social distancing and with uh, giving discourses or, or maybe instructions on Zoom, but you also did things like organize food drives for those in need and to speak out against and participate in, in some of the protests that were going on at the moment. So it sounds like you you made a very intentional turn to want to apply these spiritual teachings in a very worldly way with what was going on in our lives at this time.
3: Yeah, I never thought about it that way. (laughs) But that's a very Mm. good um, summary, actually. And also, once again, it's very good teaching to uh, really understand that the Dharma is something that needs to be applicable in every single moment of our life, whether there's a pandemic going on, or there is not a pandemic, whether we're encountering people Mm. who are you know, having a difficult time finding food to eat or whether we are dealing with people that um, have a full belly and just responding to anything that comes up um, in front of us. Um, I remember um, meeting Venerable Thich Vap Hai, who is one of the senior uh, disciples of Thich Dan Han, and he was talking about the definition of engaged Buddhism, which simply means uh, he was uh, telling us being present in every single moment with whatever is, you know, the difficulty that, um, whatever is the suffering that in, you know, is manifesting. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I guess this was the time 2020 has been the time for us to, to practice engaged Buddhism, but um, I think we did it exactly in that way. That was not, you know, like planning or strategizing, but rather just responding, seeing what is the appropriate response right now to what is currently currently going on, which is currently arising either within the monastery or outside the monastery, you know, in the community or in the city close by, because we are right outside New York City. Like what what are the things that that need to be addressed and trying our best to to act in the most skillful way possible in accordance to Dhamma. And of course, we're not perfect. So I'm I'm pretty sure that not everything we did is perfect. But there's the aspiration for perfection. There is the aspiration for enlightenment. And so hopefully we're closer to awakening.
0: Mm-hmm. And do, do you feel – so some of the innovations that you've done and this pivot that you've made in, in wanting to face and respond to these worldly situations head on, do you feel this is kind of a momentary shift in terms of what the needs are at the moment? Or do you feel that something a bit more powerful and dramatic that it might be affecting the very mission or fundamental nature of what your monastery is and how it behaves in the world?
3: Yes, absolutely as with everyone in in the world right now i think the pandemic has been a bit a big earthquake in our lives and um also somewhat um, created the conditions to see what is important and what is not important so of course the lockdown and everything has accelerated the Monastery part of our monastery and retreat center. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, before I think we were operating more as a retreat center, right? And now we're operating more as a monastery. And so, I'm not quite sure what exactly the future will be, we'll only know then.
2: <laughs> sure.
3: But, um, but yeah, of course, there's no there's no turning back to the form shape and mind that we were in the past that's all gone uh, we've had a new rebirth so we'll see there's once again we're just uh, practicing engaged buddhism <laughs> right now there is lots of enthusiasm as i was mentioning in terms of being of joining this community also in in robes <laughs> so people who are who are aspiring to be, to be monastics. Um, so that's what we're currently working at here. And um, it's also, as I was mentioning, a gender-inclusive monastery. So there's also interesting conversations that we're having in what exactly that looks like, especially since we're all wearing Theravada robes. There is not really a pre-existing model to look at to copy and paste. Mm. So this is creating some really interesting conversations and also the realization that sometimes things are a problem only if we make them into a problem, which is quite refreshing. But, you know, it's all new. Uh, so, (laughs) So that's why I'm saying that there's a lot of blessings because probably these conversations wouldn't have happened or these dynamics wouldn't have happened had you know, such a tragic thing like the pandemic hit us. And yeah, we'll, we'll see.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you're juggling a lot there.
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, we never get bored here.
0: <laughs> 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 well, I really appreciate the time that you made today with everything else you have going on and to be able to share a bit about how your monastery has progressed and where you're at now with the pandemic and how you're responding to it. And before we close out, was there anything else you wanted to add?
3: Um, No, thank you so much for having me today. And I'm really happy that you're doing um, this project in Myanmar. I've seen a lot of friends that were featured uh, in the podcasts. Mm. So keep keep up the good work. I've also seen actually the fundraisers that um, you all have supported for the female monastics in Burma. So that's all really good work. So sending many blessings to you all.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. And I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll chat more about some more topics in the future with you personally or other people connected to your monastery and wishing you all the best for moving forward.
3: Likewise. Thank you. <laughs>
0: I'd like to take this time to offer sincere gratitude for those listeners who have supported our effort. Thank you. Without your generous contribution, we would not be able to do what we're doing. And if you've not yet donated, we'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that our work is 100% listener supported. In fact, no team member receives full remuneration for their work. Some volunteer their time, while others offer a large discount for their professional services. But even so, every episode we produce has a cost. Any contribution of any amount that you make towards Insight Myanmar will allow us to continue our work and pump out more content for meditators related to the Dhamma in the Golden Land. If you would like to join in our mission to share the Dhamma from the Golden Land more widely, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to sustaining the programming. You can give right on our website via credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org donation or through PayPal by going to paypal.me insightmyanmar. We also take donation through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. In all cases, simply search Insight Myanmar on each platform and you'll find our account. Alternatively. You can also visit our website for specific links to any of these respective accounts, or feel free to email us at info at In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, spelled I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you for your kind consideration. Dick Delanoy, thank you so much for joining us here at the Insight Myanmar podcast. I understand you're in Georgia now?
4: That's right. We're in Southeast Georgia, um, outside of Jessup. Been here for 13 years.
0: Oh, okay. Great. And you're at a Vipassana Center there? That's right. Right. Can you tell us a bit about the name of the center and its history and connection to the larger tradition?
4: Uh, this is... Uh... Vipassana in the tradition of S.N. Goenka and, and Sayajubakin. And uh, our particular center is called Dhamma Patapa, Majesty of Dhamma.
0: So this is part of the wider tradition of Vipassana and the tradition of S.N. Goenka. So during normal times, pre-pandemic, can you let us know a bit how these centers usually operate?
4: Okay. We usually have, at least at our center, we have about a capacity for 60 students at a time. Each course, we do about 15 to 18 courses a year. Uh, we don't do anything else other than run these courses. Uh, there are 10-day courses uh, for, for most students. After a while, we, we have longer courses, 20- and 30-day courses for students, more experienced students.
0: Great. So in normal times, this is generally how your centers are running. Of course, these aren't normal times. And the first thing I'm curious about is... When the realization started to dawn on you that things were going to be quite different, the pandemic obviously didn't hit at an exact moment in time, but the realization of what was happening hit different people in different ways. So for you specifically, and maybe your crew of other teachers and administrators and trustees at that center in Georgia, when did this realization start to dawn on you?
4: Well, we've been following information about the pandemic in late February, and we're beginning to make plans about what to do with it. And there was a point it seemed like overnight where all of a sudden it shifted from well we could do this and we could do this to okay, we have to shut down. I guess it was at that point where the the curve started going exponential. and it wasn't that high compared to what it is now, but it was shockingly high at that time. So we closed the center for the rest of the spring and and most of the summer. We had a few servers who stayed on after the last course that we conducted in February and early March. And my partner and I, Erica, who are both ATs here, assistant teachers here, we, we became caretakers of the place. Uh, we started having courses for them, for the two of them. And then when a couple other people arrived, we included them. But everyone who came had to be quarantined for 14 days on site. They'd usually do a self course. Mm before we would actually allow them to mix. Mm -hmm. And given that strategy, we've been able to keep our servers totally isolated from students after we did start tentatively running courses again. Mm. Uh, It's almost like a firewall between students and everyone else. I mean, I'm sorry, between servers and everyone else. The teachers have to interact with students, but the servers don't interact at all. And as a consequence, they're able to work together as a team without wearing masks in the kitchen uh, or or anywhere else for that matter. And as long as they're on the site, it's like a little monastery now that we never go anywhere anymore, except to go Mm -hmm. to Walmart and and get curbside pickup for food and supplies.
0: Right. You mentioned how the, the servers and the students have zero interaction at all. There's like a firewall. Is that different than normal times? What in pre pandemic, what would be the normal interaction between servers and students?
4: Well, two different kinds of servers. One's the kitchen staff. They put the meals out and the meals were eaten eaten in a dining room attached to the kitchen. The students could ring a bell for a doorbell for assistance if the, something ran out or they needed something or other. They were sharing the same airspace in the building. Mm-hmm. The other type of server is what we call course managers and they provide direct contact with students in terms of helping them with mundane issues like, they need a blanket or they need the air conditioning fixed or a light bulbs out or they need a toiletry that they didn't bring, anything like that. Oh, we also serve two meals a day, a uh, breakfast and lunch, mm-hmm. and then a, a, a tea time where old students would drink lemon water or tea and new students might have a piece of fruit. Now, the students who come, they bring their own breakfast fixings. They do that on their own. Lunch is provided in bento boxes, little plastic three-chamber boxes with a handle on it that we, for a while we were putting them out beside their residences. Now we're putting them in a central location where the students come to, to get it themselves and then bring it back when they're done. So except for picking up the dishes and putting it in bleach, that's the only contact that the kitchen staff has now. Right. Right, and when you initially
0: made this decision to just lock down over spring, was that a decision based on your own thinking among trustees and teachers at the center, or was it reflective of wider state guidelines?
4: Both, both. We have a, a center reopening committee that started right there at the at the beginning. I see. We had a number of assistant teachers on it. We had a cup, one of our administrators on it, and we had a. We had the benefit of a professor of uh, community health, public health, Mm -hmm. who was in our southeast area, and she has connections with CDC, so she was also influential in helping us gauge our response. And I think in those days, we were so shell-shocked, deer in the headlight, that closing down seemed like the only thing to do. Now, in retrospect, we're holding courses, and there's five times as many people getting the disease now. There's a calculation I did recently that in the five Southeast states that we serve, there's been 18,000 people each day get get the virus, are confirmed as having the virus. Right, I see.
0: So as you were making these decisions, I understand that in this tradition, there's also other centers that are nearby in other states, other non-centers that also have their own committees, and then, of course, in other countries. How was this operating in tandem? Were there conversations from one center to the other, or were each was each group solely independent on being able to make their own decision and decision process
4: going forward? There was a lot of information exchanged, but we've pretty much run each center independently. They make their own judgment about what's safe in their area. Mm-hmm. Their own infrastructure helps decide what they can what they can do, how many students they can take so it's been a pretty much Every center decides for itself. There's a number of the centers in North America that still haven't opened yet. I see. Uh, then a couple that started before us. Mm-hmm. I think that we became confident enough. We started with some teachers who wanted to do a self course here. And that's when we started delivering meals to them and they would do their own breakfast. And once we saw that pattern, we thought, well, let's try four. Then let's try eight. Right now we're up to 20 students at a time. 20 and the normal capacity is 60, you said? And the normal capacity is around 60, yes.
0: Right. And in terms of those centers that have reopened, are they following a similar set of protocol or is every every center in this tradition kind of doing something different according to their own evaluation?
4: It's pretty much doing it differently. I don't think anyone's doing the bento box procedures we have. I see. They're still doing meals, although they're serving them individually and i'm not 100% sure of that actually we haven't had much, that much communication lately some of the centers are small enough anyway that that they didn't really need to do that much adjustment it sounds like mm-hmm. one other thing we're doing differently and this is also a fairly big deal is is that we restrict the number of students in the hall to a small number initially we weren't letting students in the meditation hall at all that they were doing their courses as self courses in their hall and over the last Six courses, we've gotten a little more adventuresome about letting people into the hall. Right now, what we do is a maximum of five men and five women in the hall. On this course, my partner Erica is conducting in the hall with those students. And of the 10, we we do a switchover in the morning so that the most experienced students can come in from 8 to 11 o'clock in the hall. And then the newer old students, none of them are new students, they all have had at least one course, the newer old students will come to the hall for the afternoon, so everyone gets a chance to be in the hall. We also have a pretty powerful energy recovery ventilation system that pretty much flushes the air out in the two-hour gap between when one crew ends and the other crew starts.
0: I see. Was, that, um, was this a new innovation, or was this from the original time of the center?
4: This came along partway through this. We were starting to think about UV lights and and HEPA filters as a way of clearing the virus. And our public health service person said that, you know, the best way to do is just ventilate That that's the best way of removing the virus. The reason we're doing a split shift is that the course, even for experienced old students, it it was pretty difficult. It's like sitting in one of our long courses. Because there's not much interaction, there's no socializing, and it's not its not that you're socializing, it's just that you see other people in the dining room, they're around you, they're making noise, you,
2: uh-huh. you get up and
4: walk around, and so that tends to break the cycle so that you don't stray off too far into the weeds, so to speak, that, that you don't go too deep too fast. When we started with the old students and we didn't let anyone in the hall, we resorted to doing more frequent interviews that we would invite almost everybody in for an interview every day, just to touch base with them, to give them a little bit of extroversion so they weren't so introverted. And now at the split shift, we're doing better. The Fewer students are, are complaining that it was really hard. A lot of them were clamoring, oh, we want to hear the tapes. We want to be in the hall. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of giving everyone a chance each day.
0: Right. And are you allowing pure new students to come or is there a regulation in place that, that someone has to have a minimum level of experience before attending a course these days?
4: Each course we're doing, we're trying to get closer to normal mm-hmm. and still have a set of protocols that we believe is safe. So eventually, I mean, the next step, we've already taken students that have only had one course. We're ready. Within a couple of months, we're going to start taking new students again. It may be just a few, like three or four is all, but we're going to start. Mm-hmm. And then see how we can continue to expand the numbers. Part of the limitation also that we have is that we wanted to have everyone have a private room with, that was well ventilated. All oh, right. right. And so that has limited us right now to 11 men and 11 women. We have another building that was built, but it has central air. The ones that I just talked about have individual AC. Mm-hmm. The central air one, we're a little hesitant about using because everyone would be sharing the same airspace. Mm-hmm. So we may have to bring in you know, either portable heaters or window air conditioners in order to to make that work, that building work for the duration.
0: Right. So it's a number of things to have to think through pertaining to the physical center that haven't really been on the radar before.
4: Yeah. This is all, we're making this up as we go. This is... Yeah. Yeah. Aren't we all? we're concerned about the emotional welfare and, and mental welfare of our students. Now we're having to balance that against this, this physical health problem and the trade-offs are, are difficult.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: We try not to have any trade-offs at all. The, the main trade-off is we just can't bring as many students here.
0: Right. Right. And what have you noticed about student interest in taking courses? Has that stayed consistent or has it gone up or
4: down during this period? We always have a waiting list, even in a normal time, so we've not had any problem at all in getting having students come. We initially sent out a list of, for the first course we did, it was invited only, so we went through our roster of students in the Southeast who had had long course experience and invited them. And we did a couple courses like that, but then we saw that those numbers were tailing off, so we we relaxed it a little bit and started taking students who had eight courses and then five. And then three, and now we're down to one or two.
0: Hmm, right. So you've been, as you mentioned, working your way back from, from being locked down completely to a tentative opening and then working your way back to some sense of normalcy. Obviously, things won't be entirely normal until there's a vaccine, but moving towards a greater degree of safety and being able to open your doors to a higher number of people who uh, want to be able to participate. Yeah. Right. That's right.
4: The only other thing that was significant about this the shutdown that we did was that we had always had problems with dining it was ridiculously tight it was one of the first buildings we built and we were on a tight budget and as our numbers grew the, the dining room became ridiculous we tried building additional dining annexes but that was you know not a lot of gain for the for what we were putting into them what we really wanted to do was to to build a large extension to the kitchen building so that the old dining room was would become the serving room and then we'd have a, a big dining space. Sure. But we couldn't do it because courses were going all the time. Now that the courses stopped, we actually built it. Unfortunately, we can't use it <laughs> now. But...
0: <laughs> but you you say you built this during the was it that's during during the lockdown that you did this?
4: Yeah, we had contractors come in and we would keep them isolated and outside. We would tape up the doors that. For the room that would might possibly exchange air with the dining with the kitchen. I'm sorry. So it's it's just that you know having this opportunity and figuring out a way to keep the contractors away from us and the numbers in Georgia were not that high. A lot of time the con the work was going on in our county in 30,000 people there was only about 15 20 cases. That has grown now to around 1,500 cases. Mm which is for a county with 30,000 people in it, about 5% of the population has had the disease now.
0: Mm, right. that's It's funny hearing you say that because during the pandemic, obviously it, offer, it different people are affected in different ways. It offers a way to um, look at one's life patterns and, and do different things. And often in the world, people have talked about how with the pandemic, it had them get back into themselves. Some people took up a meditation practice at home. Some just, even if they weren't meditating per se, they became a bit more internal and quiet and in their own world and in their own space. And then we check in with a meditation center and it's kind of the opposite thing going on during the the lockdown, at least that uh, the meditation center By necessity, people stop meditating as much, and then something very worldly like construction is able to take place, and activity that normally doesn't happen because everyone's meditating is able to go ahead. So it's kind of this reversal between the worldly and spiritual dynamics. So it's kind of interesting.
4: Kind of. I mean, I still consider us in a very strange state right now. Mm -hmm. The lockdown is still pretty severe. That construction happened when we weren't running courses, so we were only worried about our servers. And during the few times that the contractors actually had to go into the kitchen, we would actually vacate the building and we would go over to our community next door and and have meals over there for a few days. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Right. So you mentioned about the demand for courses being somewhat consistent with how it's been before, although there's, there's different regulations in place in terms of the students who do come and how you're working with them You've obviously, as a teacher, you've been in a capacity of of working with students learning meditation and the emotional and psychological, et cetera, uh, effect and process that they go through. Um, during this time, have you noticed any difference in terms of what's coming up for students or how they're working with it or how it's affecting the meditation process or has it been relatively the same?
4: And for the most part, I think it's been relatively the same. The kind of issues that come up for students are are still the same old kinds of things, trying to help the student get out of their own way. They mm-hmm. they want so much to do this right, and they wind up being in their head too much. And it's hard to help students learn how to relax and, and just let it happen. Mm-hmm. That's That's always been the issue. The only thing that I really see is that the students are putting up with a lot more inconveniences than they were before, that they're so grateful to be able to sit a course at all that they'll put up with a lot, such as doing their own meals or having to wear a mask in the Dhamma hall, which is Mm -hmm. the meditation hall. And the mask gets hot and humid, and it becomes a distraction.
0: Mm, Right, so even when the Dhamma, I, I didn't get that. So even when the Dhamma hall is open and you have a very limited number of students, for say a one hour group sitting, all the students and teachers, I guess the servers aren't there, everyone's wearing a mask during that hour? That's right. That's right. Oh, okay. Okay.
4: We had calculated that the odds of somebody coming to the center with a, that was pre symptomatic but contagious, mm-hmm. was around one student a year. And the consequences of that could be serious. That one course, especially if a server got sick, that that we would shut the course down at that point. We couldn't continue. So we've been, we're assuming that every, in every course somebody's going to come with the, that's ill and doesn't know it, and then we'll be ready for that. Mm-hmm. In fact, on this course right now, we just discovered a woman on the course. She had visited with friends on their porch. wasn't sure whether they were wearing masks. They were about four to six feet apart. And we got an email from the friend saying her boyfriend that was there has been tested positive. And so we moved the student out to another building that I mentioned earlier that, that we're not using because it has central air. But she's the only one out there, so it doesn't matter whether she's sick or not. So she's gone into seclusion. If she, gets, if she shows symptoms, we'll send her home right away so she can get to someplace safe By the time that, that, on the chance that she becomes seriously ill.
0: I see, right. So you have to make judgments in the moment of responding to things coming up during this time.
4: Yeah. So in hindsight, our action to have a mask on in the Dhamma hall makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right. We already have been, you know, running up against uh-oh, could this be it? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Sure.
0: On a personal level, you know, obviously the Teachings of the Buddha, the practice of meditation. This, these weren't meant for times of stability or prosperity, the, the the normal that most of us are used to living in, at least in Western countries or developed countries, and it might take for granted. But also, just as relevant during these times of difficulty and strife. And I'm wondering in your own personal practice if any insights about the relevancy and the importance of these teachings have has come through your meditation practice in a new way or a different way than prior to the pandemic without these conditions being present?
4: I think that the only personal thing that was different is that, I guess it dovetails with this, is that a group of us started doing you know, more study of the, the Buddhist teachings, uh, reading the suttas. And... You know, having more insight into what the Buddha was talking about, being able to 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 read it, has helped my practice in ways I'm not sure I understand. But but things are different. Oh, uh-huh. I think that the other factor is that I'm less distracted by the outside world. I, I still read mm-hmm. the news, but I don't go to town to coffee shops or hang out at the hardware store anymore. There's uh, nobody to visit, so. <laughs> right so you know we everyone servers and eric and i included that we were i think we're tending to become more more introverted and more relying on the smaller community of dama workers mm mm-hmm. right and so
0: this decision to join the study group that was predicated on the pandemic occurring at the time that was some way like a motivator to join that
4: i think it would it may have for some of them. I think it was more coincidental that, that we had talked about it and 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 started it, but whether or not that was because of the virus, I'm not sure. It was, certainly wasn't my intention because of that. I think we just found ourselves with more time. <laughs> oh, sure. Right. Yeah.
0: And as this pandemic is currently raging and and definitely the teachings of the Buddha and meditation practice have a certain relevancy in accepting what is and in uh, seeing the value of a balanced mind, have you or other teachers in the tradition brought these teachings through writing or through a discourse to... Meet the demands of the moment, I guess, is is uh, the question I'm looking for, like to take this fundamental practice, this timeless practice that people have practiced, obviously before the pandemic and many centuries before us, but during this difficult time that we're in to show the relevancy of the current times and the current situation of going back into this practice and how this practice can help us at a time like this.
4: Yeah. We have a, an elder scholar, Paul Fleischman, who, who's written a lot, and he had put together a talk a while back. A few years ago, he had, he had a talk about how to prevent the Dhamma from hurting you, that, that people resort oftentimes to the Buddhist teachings, not for the sake of liberation, but for reasons of escape, for instance, that, that they're, they're trying to escape some difficulty in the world, and so they see this as an opportunity. And the coronavirus just adds, piles on the stress to people, and, and there's even more inclination to withdraw. Some people might start meditating four or five, six hours a day and, and maybe go too deep too far again, as I was alluding to before. Mm-hmm. So one other thing that, that happened was that the center in Massachusetts developed periodic Zoom sessions in which we would do group sits for anyone around the country who wanted to dial in and there was often a usually a question and answer session following it, maybe a discourse, you know, some kind of recording from Goenkaji or or some other teacher, some other you know, things like the Dhamma Brothers, the that that movie, and there was other movies that were made about the Dhamma being taught in India. Those kinds of things were aired on a twice weekly basis. Group sits were twice a day. Still going on as far as I know. Right. So, we, we started resorting to high tech as a way of, of compensating for the lack of courses. Mm, right. And what was the reception to that? Very positive, especially at first. You know, it was almost always, we, we had set aside 500 slots on Zoom and we were filled pretty much all the time. There are one day courses we're also having, by the way, that, that have been well received. On Zoom with the one day courses? Yeah, one-day courses on Zoom. That, oh, right. that lasted like four to six hours on a mm-hmm. on a Saturday. The number of students lately seemed to be drifting down to 250 or so. But our students, our, our servers had been tapped into that, and it was usually eight or nine. Towards the end, we had about seven or eight, nine students who could tap into it and listen in. So, you know, that, if that happens everywhere, that 500 Cases, 500 slots may actually be accommodating one or 2,000 students.
0: Mm, right. Right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And one of the things about this pandemic that's raging is that it is changing society and human action in ways that we might not even understand for many years from now. And the same can be said for you know, companies, businesses, offices, as well as religions and spiritual organizations. So I'm curious, and, and as this process is going on in the case of some businesses and organizations, it's having some of them innovate and look how to bring their services or products or work in a way they had never thought before because there's so many regulations in place. But I've heard several stories about once some of these innovations started, just because of the pandemic, people have stepped back and thought, "Well, actually, this is a pretty good idea. We never uh, realized." Uh, you know that we could do it this way or that we could work in that way. So I'm curious about a, a spiritual organization, one that's primarily centered around the teaching of meditation. Have there been shifts that you had to do in the way these teachings were disseminated or certain protocols at the center, certain outreach to the students that you've had to innovate by force of the circumstances that you might take a step back and when this is all over say, you know, that was actually a pretty good idea. We can, even in normal times, this is something good to think about and continue doing.
4: You know, I can't think of anything offhand. I mean, the goal that we've said is to try to bring it back to normal again, mm-hmm. try to get back to the original schedule and pacing that, that Goenkaji had established and that we've been operating for a long time. It's, it's We have this community of teachers who don't know anything else but that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could. I mean, some of the things we played with is using more uh, video conferencing. Maybe that would work. I think everything will depend on how the vaccinations go. Mm -hmm. If we can vaccinate quickly, if there's enough medical supplies to give the vaccinations, like syringes and needles, if the vaccine lasts, has, has good durability, gives us you know, good resistance to the illness for for years, we won't have to worry about it. We just go back to normal again. The pandemic will fade. If we find ourselves in a situation where, you know, the vaccine only works for three months and you have to start all over again, or there's recurrent waves with different mutations that the vaccine doesn't cover, you know, I could think of a lot of scenarios, kind of depressing scenarios that could cause us to, have to stay in this mode. And that will just keep trying to increase the numbers under these circumstances. You know, the possibility of contagion, the possibility we'd have to shut a course and see if we can minimize the risk for everybody and still be able to function.
0: Right. Yeah. Understood. These are definitely uncertain times that we're all living in. And uh, I really thank you for the time that you've given today. I know that you're speaking to us in the middle of a course right now. What day are you on?
4: This is day five out of 10.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, thanks so much for making time for this. And was there anything else you wanted to add?
4: Uh, there's one thing. One other way in which we've changed our procedures is that we are now taking a lot more care in accepting students beforehand. So we are asking students before they come to quarantine if possible. Mm-hmm. And And to fill out a profile to say, "All right, what kind of work do you do? Do you work where there's a lot of people? Do you wear masks? Are you have family members who have who have been sick recently? All these things go into now into the procedures for accepting students. We have a waiting list all the time, but instead of doing it first, come first serve, we'll often scan that list for, all right, which are the least risk people? Mm-hmm. You know, the people who have had the most course experience? And the people who have had the least uh, exposure to the disease, right,
0: right. so changing the way that students are accepted and the uh, the application process out of necessity as well.
4: yeah right,
0: right. well, thank you so much for being on and sharing these thoughts. I know that uh it's been hard for many people to get information about how things are changing and those that are serious meditators. And unable to go to centers for a variety of reasons right now to be able to check in and just learn how these centers are trying to get back to normal and what these protocols are, uh, I think is of of interest and value for um, knowing how meditation instruction is continuing to be uh, taught and practiced in this country and everywhere else. So uh, thank you very much.
4: My pleasure. You
0: have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information at www.insightmyanmar.org. That's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure that it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in our discussions on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name of Insight Myanmar. And if you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at BurmaDhamma at gmail.com. That's B-U-R-M-A-D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com and we're also active on DhammaWheel. If you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that forum here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes, so if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharng There's of course Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host, Ken Pransky helps with editing, Dragos Bendita, and André Francois produce original artwork, and a special Mongolian volunteer who was asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come and share such powerful personal stories. Finally, we are immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own, and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note, as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact-check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there is a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar Podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, and excerpts of any episodes. It is also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we are very open to collaboration, so if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. As you know, our podcasts are 100% listener-supported. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you'd like to give especially to support our new run of coronavirus episodes, please go on the GoFundMe site and search Insight Myanmar to find our campaign. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. Thanks, and see you next show.